Well, if all of creation <coughs> is the result of a random uh, accidental expansion of the universe 13.8 billion years ago, as many believe it to be, then there is no inherent purpose for any of this. If, if, no, if no one is actually responsible, uh, no person is responsible for what is here, then there's no inherent purpose for any of this. However, if there, if there is a God someone who intentionally designed and created the universe and everything in it, then there is unquestionably an inherent purpose for all of this. Without a creator, nothing has a purpose. With the creator, everything has a purpose. Now, of course, you can try to assign purpose to things on your own without a creator. You can. But any purpose that you try to assign to anything or anyone, if there's no creator, is subjective at best. Which means that kind of purpose is based on nothing more than what you think or you feel. Which becomes a problem when someone else assigns a different purpose to that same thing or person than you do. Because uh, who's right? What is the true purpose for that thing or that person and who gets to decide? And listen, if your answer is that everyone should get to decide for themselves what their purpose is, then, uh, then what about the serial murderer? What about the thief? What about the cult leader? Right? What about the anarchist? All of a sudden, we're not so eager to let everyone decide for themselves what their purpose is, are we? So who gets to make that decision? Uh, governments? Politicians? Philosophers, right? Uh, religious leaders? Pastors? The culture? Individuals? I mean, who, who gets to decide what your purpose is? If there's no creator, no designer, no divine source of all creation, then look, any purpose you assign to your life is nothing more than a subjective idea that you have about yourself. Which is one of the reasons much of this world, by the way, is in the shape that it's in. When human beings get to determine their own purpose for existing, all sorts of really bad things begin to happen. Leaders of nations decide that their purpose is to exterminate entire people groups, and so genocide happens. Politicians decide that their purpose is to determine what is best for other people, including the right to exterminate your own children. Men and women decide that their purpose is to be uh, with someone else, so they abandon their families. And cultures on the whole, well, they purpose to define what is good and what is evil for their citizens based on nothing more than whatever happens to be in vogue at the time in regard to popular moral thinking. You see, if there's no creator who determines the purpose of everything and everyone, then there is no objective standard to live by. Which means whatever happens in this world is then left to whatever each person deci uh, decides is right or what is wrong. And welcome to the world we live in. Right? This is one of the reasons the biblical story of uh, creation is so fundamental to our worldview, or more specifically, to understanding uh, our true purpose for being here. Because if there is a God who created everything, then inherently everything has a purpose. Right? And if everything has a purpose, that means you have a purpose. 
which by the way is not determined by any government or politician or philosopher or religious leader or culture, ultimately not even by yourself. No, that purpose is determined by the God who created you. In fact, one of my very favorite verses in all of biblical scripture says, in your book were written, every one of them, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, Psalm 139.16. In other words, there's not only a purpose for your life in general, there is actually a God-given purpose for every single day of your life which was determined by God before you were ever born. Let that sink in. Every day of your life has a God-given purpose. Every single day has a purpose that existed before you did. The question is, are you living for that purpose? Because that's a free choice we make through free will. That's what he talked about on the video. Are you, are you making every single day count? Is there purpose in every decision, every conversation, every accomplishment, every place you go, every effort you make, every failure and every success? Is there purpose in everything that you do? Do you consider the purpose behind every day of your life or are you simply trying to get by and better yourself whenever possible? Listen, if you don't believe that there is a creator behind all of this, uh, then I get it. I understand that without Christ there can seem to be no purpose to all of this, so why not live however you feel like living, right? Why not live for yourself? But if you are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, then you must recognize that there is a very specific reason that he continues to put breath in your lungs every day to keep your heart beating in your chest and your blood pumping in your veins. And I can tell you this, it is not so that you can live for yourself. No, your God-given purpose is infinitely and in fact eternally greater than living for yourself. And I'm just wondering, are you living for that purpose? Are you making every single day count? Are you taking for granted the days that have been given to you and living for yourself? Because look, each of us, uh, each of us has been given a fixed amount of days on this planet. And none of us knows how many days that is. So why, why would we ever waste even one of them? Why would we squander the opportunities that he gives us every day to glorify him by living for him and for each other, by loving him and loving each other, by serving him and serving each other, by sharing him with other people every chance we get? You see, God created every day of your life to fulfill a very specific purpose. Why waste even one of them? He never does. He never wastes anything. There's nothing random or accidental or purposeless or pointless about God's creation as we'll see today in our time together as we continue working our way through the creation story. So let's turn there together to Genesis 1 as God demonstrates his purpose in everything that he does and we'll see if that same kind of purpose is reflected in everything that we do as well. Genesis 1, we'll begin with the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So over the past two weeks, we covered these two verses in detail. So of course, we won't do that again today, other than to remind you that at this point in the creation story, there was still no form to what had been uh, created thus far. There was just this massive, watery uh, mix of formless matter with the Spirit of God hovering over all of it in the darkness. And so uh, there are all of these ingredients before him now that he has created. Everything needed to begin shaping and forming or fashioning the rest of his masterpiece and there he is hovering over it all and then we see him in the rest of the chapter like the master sculptor beginning to craft all of this vastly beautiful and fiercely powerful creation we see him bring order and structure and form and purpose out of this formless orderless mass of newly created matter and right from the start of verse 3 we see leading into every consequent verse for the rest of chapter 1, the conjunction and. Right? The word and leads us into every uh, consecutive verse for the remainder of chapter 1. And why is that significant? Well, because it shows us that each statement about the creation, each verse, each uh, step of the creative process is sequential and chronologically connected to the verses before and after it. In other words, uh, this wasn't some kind of disorganized free-for-all where things were just sort of uh, popping up here and there randomly by accident. No, this was God in a very structured, sequential, purposeful way creating that which did not previously exist. Let's continue with that in mind then, verses 3 through 5. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So out of the darkness, which he had already created, God spoke the light into existence. And again, at this point, everything was still mixed together in this big formless mass. But here in verse 4, we see him begin to call his creation into order. And God separated the light from the darkness. Now, he wouldn't have had to separate them if they weren't all mixed in with everything else. So God is calling things into a structured order and we see the result in verse 5, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So the light that God spoke into existence and separated from the darkness had a very specific purpose to separate the day from the night and ultimately to order the cycle of time into days. And notice that not only did the light have a purpose, but verse 4 says that the light was good, which is a pattern that we'll see throughout the entire creation story because everything that God creates not only has a purpose, but his purposes are always good. The Apostle Paul wrote that for those who love God, all things work together for what? For good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. Notice that Paul doesn't just say that good things work together for good, or pleasant things work together for good, or the things we really want work together for good. No, he says all things work together for good, which means even the bad things in our lives and the unpleasant things in our lives and the things that we really don't want in our lives, even all of those things, work together 
for good because God's purpose for you is always good. He didn't just create the light. Remember, he also created the darkness. He uses them both to accomplish his purposes in this world, just like he uses the good and the bad to accomplish his purposes in our lives. Remember uh, Isaiah 45, 7 from last week where God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Even God's judgment on his people, which we see throughout the Old Testament, as terrifying as that certainly was at times, even his judgment was always rooted in the purpose of bringing his people back into a good relationship with him. His purposes for us are always good, which means living your life according to the purpose that he created for you. Listen, living your life according to the purpose that he created for you is always, always, always what is best for you. And the other people that he's placed in your life as well. Even when that means we have to go through hard times. So why don't we always live for his purposes in our lives then? It seems simple, right? Well, in part, it is because we've confused suffering and struggle and hardship as always being the work of the enemy and therefore always something we should run away from. Now hear me. Our enemy's real. And he is at work in this world to try and bring suffering and struggle and hardship into people's lives. He is, of course, but you understand, he has absolutely no authority over the people of God. In fact, in all of the Bible, do you know how many times Satan actually speaks? Three. Three times. He speaks to Eve in the garden. He speaks to God about Job. And he speaks to Jesus when tempting him in the wilderness. Why doesn't the devil say more? Because God won't allow him to. Our enemy cannot do anything that God forbids him to do. And yet we blame him for nearly everything that is difficult in our lives. James, the brother of Jesus, said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Seriously, James? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2 through 4. Great. The Apostle Paul said we rejoice in our sufferings. Honestly, what's wrong with you, Paul? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Romans 5, uh, 3 through 5. Okay. The Apostle Peter said, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4.13 Notice what is common about suffering mentioned in all of those passages. It always leads to something good. Because you see, even in suffering, God's purposes are accomplished in our lives. That's why those early Christians were able to actually embrace suffering because they knew that God was using it to accomplish his good purposes for them. So they didn't run from it. Now, look, uh, they probably didn't go looking for it either. But when it came, 
they embraced it and allowed it to produce God's good purposes in their lives. So listen, uh, God will allow strife and struggle and conflict in your marriage to arise from time to time. Why? Why would he do that? To make your marriage stronger, not so that you can run away from it and try to find someone who you think is better. God will allow you to go without at times in your life. Why would he do that? To make you a better steward of what he's given you. You see, God will even allow you to experience loss. Why would God do that? To help us to learn to rely on him above all others. You see, often God will allow suffering in the areas of your life that you are the weakest in to make you stronger. The areas of your life where you lack confidence to build you up and the areas of your life that seem hopeless to give you hope. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Which means every time you run away from suffering, struggle, hardship in your life, you may be circumventing God's purposes in your life, which also means you may be missing out on God's best for your life. Because His purposes are always good, even when they come by way of that which is not so good. To learn to embrace it, and you will grow in ways you never imagined. Let's keep reading, verses 6 through 8. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So now we see a pattern for God's work developing by separating the day from the night. He's created a formula for his work and consequently for our work as well. The day was the light time when God did his work. The darkness was the night time when God did no work. So again, even the darkness has a purpose and nothing new was created at night and he follows that pattern throughout the creation process and here in verses 6 through 8 he continues to bring the uh, to the formless uh, and structure to the watery mass uh, that he's already created so he's bringing in form and structure and purpose and interestingly uh, in in verse 7 when it says, and God made the expanse and separated the waters, the word made is the Hebrew word asa, which means to fashion. It's a different word than bara, which we see in verse 1, which means to create. So God created the materials, the ingredients for his work on this planet and in space. And so in verse 1, he's now, uh, in verse 1, he creates all of that. Now he's forming or fashioning the order and structure and purpose to all of that to support life-sustaining conditions out of that which he's already created. Uh, and the word expanse in verse 6, which some translations have as firmament, is the Hebrew word rakia, which is literally translated as expanse or canopy. So when God says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters, he's creating our atmosphere by separating the waters from the rest of the heavens. Again, verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven. The heavens here being the Hebrew word shamayim, which we uh, talked about last week, which includes what we refer to as space and the earth's atmosphere. And of course, our atmosphere is a protective canopy for the inhabitants of the earth, right? So... 
God is fashioning the conditions on earth now out of what he's already created that will sustain physical life. Can you see the great purpose in everything that God does? Not a moment is wasted. Nothing is random. Nothing is pointless. Nothing is purposeless. Furthermore, the waters above the expanse or above the firmament, according to scripture, constituted a vast blanket of water vapor barrier, uh, water vapor that we now refer to as the ionosphere and extending, of course, even further into space. And these waters could not have been, uh, by the way, the clouds uh, of water droplets that we have now, the, the clouds that float around in our atmosphere, because Scripture says they were above the expanse or above the firmament, our atmosphere, right? So there was a canopy or vapor blanket, if you will, over the earth, and there were many, many health and safety uh, benefits to having a vapor blanket in place. Too many actually to discuss here today, but I'll just mention a couple. A vapor canopy would have been highly effective in filtering out ultraviolet radiations, cosmic rays, uh, other destructive energies from outer space, which are now, of course, well known to be the source of both uh, somatic and genetic mutations, in other words, sources of disease and all kinds of physical maladies and sickness, which, of course, can have a, a great negative effect on human beings and animal health and longevity. So the vapor canopy would have offered, of course, a lot of protection and would have also provided a much higher atmospheric pressure than we have now. And uh, for a long time, those who sought to debunk the scientific validity of Scripture said that those conditions would have been too hard on human and animal life if they actually existed. But modern medical science has since proven that hyperbaric pressures... All right, increased atmospheric pressures are actually extremely effective in combating disease and in promoting good general health, which is particularly compelling given the ages of those early humans in Scripture before the flood. Because higher atmospheric pressure and a lot of other benefits from the vapor canopy could scientifically account for people living uh, much longer than they do now, which of course uh, then begs the question, what happened to the vapor canopy or the vapor blanket? Well, the, the short answer is the great flood that occurs later in Genesis. The waters above the expanse or above the firmament that made up that canopy were condensed and precipitated in the flood in Noah's time, which put an end, of course, to that canopy. And interestingly, right before the flood, God says in Genesis 6:3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then right after that, he brought about a flood that did away with the vapor canopy and consequently man's ability to live past 120 years. And so although, uh, look, the Bible is not a science manual, right? Although it's not that, certainly there is a lot of science that supports the claims of Scripture in the Bible. And there's a lot uh, in the Scriptures that support the claims of science, by the way, as well. More importantly... What we see here is God's purpose in everything that he does. Even in the great flood, as terrifying as it must have been and as much destruction that it caused on the earth, God is the one who ultimately brought that flood about and yet ultimately he used it for a good purpose, certainly in Noah's life and indeed for humanity after that. And by the way, Psalm 148 
shows us that the vapor canopy will be restored in the new earth that we will dwell in forever when God remakes the heavens and the earth, okay? Let's keep reading then, verses 9 and 10. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So now we have dry land forming the earth and waters forming the seas. And so in verse 9 when it says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Uh, well, what about springs and rivers and lakes and creeks, right? How are they all in one place along with the oceans? Well, think about all of the tremendous chemical reactions that were underway at the time as dissolved elements were combining with other elements to form a vast complex of minerals and rocks that make up the solid earth. Its crust, uh, its mantle, its core. These were complex and at the same time cataclysmic movements happening as surfaces of solid earth were appearing above the waters leaving this intricate network of channels and reservoirs open in the crust of the earth to receive the waters that were retreating off of the rising continents. Henry Morris says some of these reservoirs were open directly to the waters descending from above and yet others were formed as great subterranean chambers within the crust itself. All were interconnected by a complex network of tubes and waterways so that in essence they were all gathered into one place. So uh, springs come up out of the ground into lakes and rivers and creeks and those generally flow to the ocean and those that don't of course yield some of their waters back to the earth which replenishes the water table so all of the earth's water systems are in general connected in one way or another and of course science calls that the hydrologic cycle the Bible calls it all the waters being gathered into one place let's keep reading verses 11 through 13 and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So not only had rocks and minerals formed, but so had dirt fertile soil with abundant nutrients for growing plant life and notice that God says in verse 11 let the earth sprout vegetation right and then he says in verse 12 the earth brought forth vegetation so God creates all of the elements of nature and now he's organizing them he's creating order and structure and purpose here and then in verses 11 and 12 we see that he's forming systems that actually support one another the unique combination of raw material that God created and it's all now working together to bring forth life. In other words, God creates life to reproduce and support other life, which is a characteristic of God that runs like a thread throughout all of our existence. Everything that he creates in us is not only meant for a good purpose in us, but it is also intended to be reproduced in others, into other people as well, so that they grow and reproduce in others in turn. It's a cycle. In fact, uh, it is actually a spiritual cycle that is reflected in the physical world, okay? God's purpose for you is not just for you. 
everything that God has put in you, physically and spiritually, your giftings, your talents, your resources, your time, your energy, your passions, your desires, all of that is meant to be reproduced in others and to be used to support and build up one another, to bring physical and spiritual life and health to other people. You see, the purposes of God in your life are so much bigger than just your life, which means we have a great responsibility, of course, to steward those gifts that he's given to us, not just for our own sake, but for everyone else that he places in our lives. When Jesus was praying to the Father concerning his followers, he prayed, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they've believed that you sent me. John 17, 6 through 8. Can you see how the Father's purposes for Jesus were given to his followers by Jesus, who in turn were commanded to give what they had received from him to other people? Jesus said to the Father, For I have given them the words that you gave me. Now look at Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Jesus says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then the Apostle Paul writes to the early church, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. And then he writes to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2-2. Can you see the progression here? You have Jesus receiving from the Father, the apostles receiving from Jesus, the early church receiving from the apostles, and then the command from the apostles to the early church to go out and teach others also. Do you understand? Whatever God gives you, you're supposed to give it away. The salvation that we have, the truth that he's given us in his word, our abilities, our talents, our resources, our time, those were all given to us, not just for us. Those were given to us so that we could reproduce life and health in other people. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. The fact that we're supposed to produce spiritual fruit, as scripture describes it, in our lives for the benefit of other people, right? So a tree receives sunlight and rain and nutrients from the soil and on and on. Why? So that it can be healthy and grow. And when a tree is healthy and growing, it produces fruit. But look, the tree does not consume its own fruit, right? The fruit that the tree produces is not for the benefit of the tree. The fruit that it produces is for the benefit of others. Others who need that fruit so that they can be healthy and grow and then in turn produce their own fruit for others. God's purposes for you are not just for you. 
Everything that you've been given to be healthy and growing has been given to you so that you can reproduce that health and growth in others. And so look, uh, look, if the people in your life are starving spiritually, it's generally because of one of two reasons. Either they're refusing to eat, which is on them, or there is nothing for them to eat, which is on you. So just remember, everything that God does for you and in your life is for a purpose. And that purpose is always for your good. But it's not just for your good. It's for you to share. Share what you've been given with others and watch them grow along with you. Let's keep reading verses 14 through 19. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So now God is fashioning the sun and the moon and the stars and the rest of the universe with the sun and the moon referred to uh, as the greater and lesser lights. Uh, just a side note, most ancient pagan religions considered the sun and the moon to be deities and they would give them formal names like Ra and, and all of these pagan names of pagan gods so that they could identify them as such but in the creation story of the Bible they're not given formal names only the greater and the lesser lights because they're merely aspects of God's creation not God's in their own right and then in verse 16 when it says that God made the two great lights this is again the Hebrew word asa, which means he fashioned or he worked on them. In other words, the initial creating process was done for the time being. And so God is now focused on bringing order and structure and purpose to the earth and to the heavens. And so the sun and the moon are now functioning to mark the day from the night and to measure uh, seasons and years. And again, He's already created time and space, but here chronological time is now being set into motion. And one of the, uh, the complaints from scholars and some scientists in regard to Genesis has been that the formation of the entire universe here is only briefly mentioned. It's almost like an afterthought. In other words, uh, why aren't we given more detail, more information, more description of that process? Well, the answer is, at least in part, that the focus of Genesis 1 is clearly on the earth as his creation and then the focus of the rest of the Bible at least in terms of his creation is on mankind as the crown the very pinnacle of that creation and the object of course of his great salvation so the rest of the universe simply isn't the point of the story okay his great love for his people is let's keep reading verses 20 through 23 and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves <clears throat> with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas 
and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Uh, contrary to evolutionary belief, the Bible does not say that animal life began as a, a fragile blob of slimy goo that got inconceivably lucky and morphed into a slightly more complex blob of slimy goo that morphed into a more complex blob and on and on and on until the seas were eventually teeming with life. Now, uh, listen, I'm actually not trying to be sarcastic about all of this. In fact, I know that there are professing Christians who believe that God did create all of this, but they believe that he did it through evolution, and I understand that position. I'm simply trying to point out that the strongest scientific evidence that we have available to us, the fossil record, and the Bible both seem to agree that there was a sudden and abrupt appearance of complex life forms all over the earth as described on the fifth and sixth days of the creation story in Genesis. Not a gradual evolution by natural selection over billions of years. Uh, in fact, molecular biologist Michael Denton He's a self-described agnostic. This is what he wrote. Although the tiniest bacterial cells are incredibly small, weighing less than 10 to 12 grams, each is in effect a veritable micro-miniaturized factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery made up altogether of 100,000 million atoms, far more complicated than any machinery built by man and absolutely without parallel in the non-living world. That is a quote from a book that he wrote titled Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. Charles Darwin himself confessed to suppose that the eye with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Okay, listen, if you do not agree with biblical creation, I understand that. But please don't think that it's only simple-minded preachers or Bible-believing Christians who have a hard time accepting the assumptions of the theory of evolution. The fact is, some of the most brilliant, secular, scientific minds who have ever lived have a hard time accepting it as well. Back to the Hebrew, the word created here in verse 21 is the word bara that we see in verse 1, which means that God went from creating in verse 1 to then fashioning or forming many things out of his creation over the past 16 verses or so, and now he's back to creating. So he's now decisively and abruptly creating new creatures to fill the earth. And the word creatures in verse 20 is the Hebrew word nefesh, which means living being. It's the first time this word appears in scripture. And noteworthy here is the fact that God not only declared that his work was good at this point, but he also pronounces a blessing over the animals that he created. And so uh, although animals are certainly not the objects of God's love in the same way that mankind is they are most definitely objects of his care and concern. They also serve a great purpose on this earth and of course in our lives as we'll see even more next week. Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, Matthew 10, 29. He also said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father 
feeds them. Matthew 6, 26, it's incredible. Job said that God uh, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Job 12, 10. The fact is, God is intimately involved and interested and has a great purpose for all of the life that he creates because nothing is random or pointless with him, which means we should never view anything that he creates, listen, we should never view anything that he creates with disdain or as serving no purpose. All of God's creation is good and it all serves a purpose, which leads us to our final point today. Let's read verses 24 and 25. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So again, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And then we see that phrase over and over and over again as he categorizes their different kinds. Listen, he's not talking about the kind that they will eventually evolve into or the transitional kinds that they will become as they are evolving. No, it says they were brought forth according to their kinds. They're uniquely individual kinds because according to scripture, if you read it at face value, we didn't slowly all descend from a common, mindless, thoughtless, purposeless, simple life form. Humankind is one of a kind. In fact, we are the pinnacle of God's creation, not descended from, but separate and unique from the rest of his creation, which means God's purpose for you is one of a kind. Okay, all throughout this creation story, we've been talking about how certain things were created by, uh, by God, bara, and how other things were made or fashioned by God, asa, from materials that he'd already created. And so we know that the basic elements were created by God, and yet the earth coming forth uh, and the waters being gathered together and the sun and the moon, they were all fashioned by God from what had already been created. So he used what was already there to fashion something even better out of those basic elements. Now, uh, if you're going to try and make the case for evolution being supported by scripture, which a lot of people do, you could say that God caused the Big Bang, uh, the expansion of the universe, which in turn created in that process the basic elements needed to support life, and then everything after that was fashioned or evolved over billions of years from those basic elements, which sounds reasonable until you get to the fifth day, where the ancient Hebrew clearly states that animal life was not fashioned out of other animals that other already existed. No, it was a uniquely new creation, which again is what we see in the fossil record, the sudden appearance of animal kinds. And then as we read about the sixth day of creation, which we'll do next week, we find that mankind, Adam and Eve, were bara. Also, uniquely, a new creation, not fashioned or evolved from other animals that were created before. Chapter 2, verse 7 says that Adam was a man of dust, being shaped or formed by God from the ground. But if you read it in the Hebrew, it's actually the description of a potter working with clay. In fact, the word formed in that verse, yatsar, in the Hebrew, among other things, means purpose. 
It is the imagery of God shaping a lifeless being, creating and then crafting his parts together with great purpose. And then later in the same verse, it says that he became a living creature when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Suddenly, not over billions of years as he descended from other animal kinds, suddenly and uniquely among all of the rest of creation, mankind, one of a kind, was created and crafted by God in the image of God. And here's where it gets really interesting. Because if you skip ahead all the way to Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, which describe the process of all of us being brought into this world. In verse 15, after conception, the word asa, fashioned, is used to describe the process that occurs as we grow in the womb. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made, asa, in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. It's a picture of a baby growing inside of the womb, but more to the point, God's sovereignty over that entire process as he fashions us out of all the parts like a potter shaping the clay. But listen, if you back up two verses, which explains how all of those parts that we are fashioned from got there, he says, for you formed my inward parts, and the word formed is the Hebrew word kana which means created, not fashioned. And then if you keep reading, he says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And the phrase wonderfully made is the Hebrew word pala, which means to be marvelous, to be wonderful, to be surpassing, to be extraordinary, separate by distinguishing action. In other words, unlike the rest of all of creation, you are unique uniquely created, one of a kind. Do you understand what it means? Every single one of us is not descended or fashioned from other animals that already existed, but separate from the rest of all creation. You are uniquely made. You, according to Scripture, you are marvelous. You are wonderful. You are surpassing. The Bible says you are extraordinary. No matter how many people ever live on this planet, you are in fact one of a kind, which means you have a purpose unlike any other. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them, those are different than the days that were formed for everyone else on the earth. No two people on this planet were created or purposed to live the exact same life. Every one of us has been wonderfully created for a one-of-a-kind purpose, which brings us back to the question, is your life fulfilling that purpose? We're going to talk about this much more in depth next week. More about what living purposefully actually looks like. But for today, just ask yourself, is my life fulfilling the purpose that I was created for? Am I making every single day count? Is there purpose in every decision that I make, every conversation that I have, every accomplishment that I achieve, every place that I go, every effort that I make, every failure and every success that I experience? Is there a purpose in everything that I'm doing that is bigger than me? Or am I actually just believing in Jesus while I'm living for myself? Because I can tell you, 
that God doesn't continue to put breath in your lungs every day and keep your heart beating in your chest every moment and your blood pumping through your veins just so that you can live for yourself. No, you have a good purpose. You have a one-of-a-kind purpose, but it's not just for you. You were created to give yourself away in a one-of-a-kind way that is not only unique to you, but it is desperately needed by the other people around you. Are you fulfilling that purpose in your life? And if not, why waste one more day? Let's pray.